I'll be your host. This is the first in a new series of bonus episodes to go along with the main part of the show, in which I'll be covering topics that I find interesting and have prepared in advance, as well as answering questions from listeners and giving my opinions on topics that are going to be in a more structured fashion. This episode is scheduled for release on the 29th of January 2021, which is the first full moon of the year. So if you're lucky enough to be listening to this on the day of release, make sure to look out tonight and see if you can see the moon in the sky. It should look lovely, provided it's not cloudy, of course, I can't predict that in advance. Now, in accordance to traditional calendars that follow harvest cycles in the United States, the first full moon of the year is known as the Wolf Moon. I'm not certain of the reason for this. Other full moon names throughout the year will be revealed along with this podcast, though some of them are slightly more intuitive, such as next month's being the snow moon and August's being the harvest moon. Obviously, the significance of wolves and moons is not lost on me, though the reason that it's in January most certainly is. The grey wolf, of course, Canis lupus, is one of the most well-known members of the Canidae family, with itself and its recognised subspecies making their home throughout northern Europe and the continent of North America. Being the largest member of the Canidae family, and thus the largest dog, as people would say, the wolf measures up to about 160 centimetres in length and about 85 centimetres in height, which means that it's a pretty intimidating beast. That's about 60 inches by 30 inches for anyone using old money. While incredibly distinctive and can be recognised through its slightly blunter muzzle and ears, the wolf can create viable hybrids with such species as the golden jackal and the coyote in Northern America. Wolves are, arguably over anything else, most famous for their tendencies towards pack hunting, for which they are some of the most suited in the world, due to their tendencies to find a mate and stick with them for the rest of their lives, and remain with a very nuclear family structure, which they stay with until they die, helping raise cubs until they are old enough to become viable parents themselves. It's somewhat of a common myth for certain wolves to be perceived as alpha or omega, I guess, wolves, in which a wolf's ability, I assume, to lead and govern a pack is considered inherent rather than something that falls upon family structures. This, which you may or may not know already, is completely false, though did serve as the plotline for the 2010 hit animation children's film Alpha and Omega about a wolf and a wolf S, who are both very stylistically characterised towards their gender roles, who fall in opposite ends of the alpha versus omega dichotomy, and subsequently fall in love. Heartwarming. I did see that film when I was younger. I assume, or I hope I didn't see it in cinemas. It wasn't bad, but it was by no means an instant classic, though I've been recently made aware that that didn't seem to stop it from being able to create eight subsequent straight-to-DVD sequels. Yes, you heard me right, the film Alpha and Omega has eight sequels, and I fear you can find them all online. I don't know who watches them, though. This leads me on to a topic that I wasn't planning to talk about this early in the episode, but is going to be one of the consistent themes for these bonus episodes, in which I'm going to talk about, or review, perhaps, a piece of media that's important to me. On the topic of children's films, 
For me, one of the most important pieces of cinema throughout my childhood was the DreamWorks animation classic How to Train Your Dragon, which I've seen countless times and recently rewatched with my girlfriend. A brilliant experience for me, and I'll never get tired of it. For those pitiable few of you who are either not familiar with or have never heard of the film How to Train Your Dragon, I'll summarise the premise for you. No spoilers, don't worry. It follows a young Viking boy in the town of Burke called Hiccup, who is the runt of the litter among the village despite the fact that his large, burly dad is the chief of the tribe. These Vikings, though this is not their main problem, are plagued by historical inaccuracies, and all but the children speak in very thick Scottish accents. The tribe's greatest problem, however, is dragons, believe it or not, which plague the village regularly, stealing livestock and whatnot, to the point where dragon fighting and killing a dragon has become a deeply ingrained part of the village's culture. Hiccup, being a traditional child protagonist, does not fit in with the societal norms and is too scrawny, weak and intelligent to feel comfortable fighting dragons, leading to him being shunned by his father and the rest of the village. However, one night during a dragon attack, Hiccup manages to down, and severely injure but not kill, a legendary Night Fury, an unseen, unheard of and supposedly incredibly dangerous breed of dragon that no Viking has yet managed to kill. To Hiccup, this is a huge opportunity to finally demonstrate his prowess to the village, however, upon attempting to kill the dragon, he finds himself unable to do so, and sets it free. Upon returning back to the village, Hiccup struggles with attempting to hide the secret of the dragon from the rest of the village, and to deal with the emotional turmoil that comes with subverting his expectations of himself. This comes to him coming back to visit the dragon regularly, and eventually, being a children's film, they form a close bond and friendship. Hijinks, of course, ensue, and without trying to give away any more details of the plot, this charming friendship is tested throughout the rest of the film until the true nature of dragons, per se, is revealed to the rest of the Vikings. The trope, of course, of usually a young child making friends with a beast from another world that is both unlike them and the people around them has no short of usage in modern media with there being a surplus of so-called horse-girl films, or Disney princesses with animal companions with which they can communicate. DreamWorks's How to Train Your Dragon, however, I find not only manages to subvert the expectations of this common trope, but also manages to really improve on it and do the whole thing really well. While, obviously, one of the biggest drawbacks of this trope is that the animal companion can't talk, this usually leads to a lot of so-called body dialogue between the companion and the main character, and with it being an animated movie, this really allows it to shine as much as it does. Furthermore, it creates a large sequence of silent scenes in which there's no need for dialogue, and that allows the film's score, made by John Powell, to really shine through. And that score is one of the reasons I hold the film so dear to me. The soundtrack is one of my favourite pieces of music ever produced, and I listen to it on a regular basis and hold no shame in saying that openly. The film's dragon, charmingly nicknamed Toothless for obvious reasons, is an adorable sort of lizard mixture between a cat and a dog, and the producers of the film say that they mimic the body language of both of those animals in the production of the film in order to make the dragon as endearing as possible towards the average viewer, who might be able to liken Toothless towards their household pet. And I'm sure that there is no question to the familiar viewer of the film that Toothless is in fact adorable. 
There are, in addition, two feature-length sequels to the film, which in my opinion not only improve on the franchise, but are great standalone films in their own right. All in all, a brilliant franchise and one I can't recommend enough. While often overlooked as a kid's series of films, for me I don't think it's one that will ever get old. Particularly the soundtrack, which, for me and I'm sure for many other people, there is a specific substratum of moments in the film that are really accentuated by the soundtrack, and thus hearing those specific moments from the soundtrack takes you back to those moments in the film. While obviously this seems like that's what soundtracks are supposed to be for, I think it's surprisingly rare that a soundtrack really manages to take me into the moment of the film the way that the one from How to Train Your Dragon does, so props to John Powell, who is a brilliant composer for that. Moving on to another piece of media from my childhood, the books of J.R.R. Tolkien influenced me a lot throughout my childhood as a weird loner with very little to do other than imagine fantasy worlds. While definitely considered mainstream, Tolkien's books interested me in a way that really didn't equate to anything else in my life at the time, and I spent hours poring over the appendices at the end of Return of the King, to the extent where I could memorise the family trees of half of the hobbits in the book, which is, quite frankly, a huge waste of time for anyone who could be bothered. It doesn't make the book any clearer, and it doesn't make the Silmarillion make any more sense. Not that it made any sense to begin with, of course. While Tolkien's work is to most people a very staple set of literature and very well-liked, to me, researching Tolkien's life and the attitude he had towards his work was one of the biggest interesting parts of it. John Ronald Rule Tolkien, as his mother would have called him when he was in trouble, was an English boy born towards the end of the 19th century in England. While The Hobbit was written as a bedtime story for his children, and The Lord of the Rings as a sequel to its popularity, the stories that take place within those books and the universe which they take place in had existed in Tolkien's mind for years beforehand. This is because he was a massive nerd, and like anyone who's taken a hobby's interest in linguistics, decided that they would make their own language for fun and subsequently created the language of the elves and the dwarves and whatnot that are used in the books, and then created the world and the stories around them so that they'd all make sense. And thus, in my opinion, at least referring to Tolkien as a great author is a complete understatement, as he was so much more and his command of the English language, and indeed of many other languages, is second to none, and completely changed what can be considered the fantasy genre towards the modern day. As far as what that means to me, after researching Tolkien's life and interests, I became interested myself in what is in the modern day known as conlanging, or creating conlangs, short for constructed languages, which, while Tolkien wasn't the first, he was certainly the first to do it successfully, and have his works noted by the public and enjoyed by the public. This interest in conlanging led me to research what languages are built up by and what per se makes them tick, the rules of grammar, the oddities of languages around the world, and the different families and histories of languages and how they intertwine. This is almost certainly what led to my interest in linguistics today, and while I can't thank Tolkien directly for it, he was definitely a huge contributor for it, and I fear without reading those books I wouldn't have had the interest in linguistics and languages that I do today. So despite the fact that he was simply, to most people, a fiction author, and someone who sank way too much time into the parts of his book that no one actually bothered to read, to me, he's someone who guided me towards an area of academia that has now become my primary interest.
which leads me on to talking about some languages I find interesting. Tolkien, of course, was certainly no innovator, and he based most of his stories and influences just off Old Norse mythology. In the Old Norse creation myth, logically, of course, the universe is created by the sweat from a giant's armpit, and with it come about a hundred dwarves, who, in this massive poem, are all then named off and given a little epithet. These dwarves, with such names as Ori and Dori and Bilbo, really can be seen as a very clear influence towards Tolkien's work, and it's not like he just came up with all of the plot premises on the spot. The quest narrative and whatnot are all completely well-recognised and very common features of stories, and have been for thousands of years. It's not even like the Norse will have made that up themselves either. You can trace back most Indo-European religions to a point about 2500 BC, and even then, it probably wasn't invented from that point. The Old Norse creation myths were, of course, written in the Old Norse language, which was a branch of the Northern Germanic language family, and thus is relatively closely related to English, which is a Western Germanic language, along with Dutch and Flemish. What is commonly referred to as Old Norse is, in fact, the Old Norse language between the years of about 900 AD and 14 to 1600 AD. In this time period, it was spoken throughout Scandinavia, though by the end of it, it had diverged into completely unintelligible dialects, and in the modern day, those have become the modern Scandinavian languages bar Finnish, which are Icelandic, Faroese, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish. Old West Norse was the most prolific of these dialects as scholars, as in Iceland in about the year 1200, they just decided to write down basically every story they had in a massive manuscript called the Codex Regius. This is a weird phenomenon that has baffled scholars, at least the reason behind it has, though those who study Old Norse are just grateful for having such a comprehensive manuscript of Old Norse in the 11th century. Old West Norse was reasonably comprehensive and consistent throughout the Faroe Islands, Iceland, and modern-day Norway which means that those languages are slightly more distantly related to modern-day Swedish and Danish. There was also a surprisingly distinct dialect of Gutnish, spoken on the modern-day Swedish island of Gotland, which now is only inhabited by native Swedish speakers. Many say that the closest modern-day language to Old Norse is Icelandic, spoken on the island of Iceland, which is just below the Arctic Circle in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Due to this almost comedic level of isolation, most of the features of Old Norse have gone preserved throughout the last 1,000 years, which is aided by the fact that the Icelandic language tends to not like to import words directly from other languages in the way that English has done from plenty of languages such as French, or plenty of other languages around the world have done from English. And thus, Icelandic still retains the case system from Old Norse, though slightly modified, as well as the phonology being more heavily modified, though it also retains the dental fricatives of th and the, which are written with the Old Germanic letters of thorn and f, which used to be present in Old English. It also retains, to the most extent, the full conjugation of Old Icelandic verbs, which have been almost completely reduced down in modern Scandinavian languages, with tense, mood, and person, having much less distinction than in Icelandic, 
which even retains aspects, or most aspects, of the old Germanic middle passive aspect. To me, Icelandic is a very beautiful sounding language, due to, for the most part, its retention of Old Germanic and Old Norse consonant clusters, which have been simplified down in continental Scandinavian languages, though obviously that's not to say that Icelandic is completely unchanged since the medieval period, of course, it's not. There are plenty of so-called scholars who are desperate to find whichever Scandinavian dialect, whether it is Icelandic or mainland, which is closest to Old Norse spoken in the modern day. All of these are completely just shambles, and there is no language that is a complete representation of Old Norse in the modern day. For most people, Icelandic makes a solid case for it, though if a modern Icelander were to speak to a Viking back in the day, they would have quite a bit of trouble getting to understand each other purely because of sound. Once they started writing things down, of course, provided that the Viking was literate in the Latin alphabet, it would be much easier for them to get their point across to each other. Iceland is famed for, among other things, their very long place names. This is because, as with most old English names, Icelanders like to name their settlements and geographical features just after characteristics of them. The two Icelandic places that most people are likely to be familiar with are the capital city of Reykjavik and the volcano of Eyjafjallajökull, both of which are quite a mouthful for a native English speaker. As both of these names would have been coined in Old Norse rather than modern Icelandic, they would have originally been pronounced something along the lines of Reykjavik and Eyjafjallajökull which is a subtle but very present difference in the vowel shift between medieval Old Norse and modern Icelandic. While those particular place names are relatively easy to understand for a modern Icelander if for some reason they heard a Old Norse speaker say them, that's only because the consonants are relatively unchanged and the largest shift is in the vowel diphthong between ø and a, which is not a huge difference. There's also the mutation of the double L at the end of from a long L sound to a T sound, which is a relatively uncommon sound in most European languages, but Iceland manages to have mutated it somehow. According to native Icelandic speakers who took a poll because they've got nothing better to do, the nation's favourite word in Icelandic is virgevdu which means along the lines of excuse me or sorry, which is the kind of thing that you mutter while someone's pushing past you, and fits perfectly with the Icelandic perception of quiet politeness that's present in most Scandinavian countries. Fyrigevdu is a literal translation of forgive you, as it can be seen as quite similar in English, and perfectly demonstrates one of the differences in grammar between modern Icelandic and Old Norse, which is the creation of an imperative i.e. a command word, by the suffixing of the word for you, thu, which is related to English thou, of course, onto the end of a verb. In this case, the verb is furigeva, to forgive, which is quite a similar parallel, and the suffixed allophone is thu, which is a voiced version of the pronoun thu, following a strange and needlessly complex paradigm of rules about the voicing and frication of the pronoun when suffixed onto the end of a verb. This is a good example of the linguistic feature of assimilation, which is a feature very much not exclusive to Icelandic, in which it is common for affixes, 
on a word, i.e. bound morphemes, to take on some phonetic characteristics of the word around them. If none of those words make sense, a morpheme is basically just a bit of a word that has meaning. It can be a full word, or it can be a affix, such as ing, which doesn't carry any meaning on its own, but modifies an existing morpheme. An example of assimilation, reasonably obvious one in English, is the suffix in, which has the allophone, i.e. alternate pronunciation of im, if it's before a consonant that's pronounced with the lips. So you have inedible, but impossible, if that makes sense. Or at least I hope that the difference there is picked up. And in Icelandic, the suffix of thu, thu, tu, or du is dependent on the end of the verb to which it's suffixed on. So, fyrigevdu, it ends in a voiced fricative, v. Hopefully those words make sense. If they don't, that's fine. But the suffix becomes the another voiced fricative, in order to create a smoother transition between the two morphemes. Hopefully that was an interesting tangent for you. I apologise if there's too much or too little linguistics going on. Feel free to message me on Instagram, or let me know if there's any changes that you'd like to see in the podcast, and I'll be very happy to implement them. Until then, I say this has been a pretty well-rounded bonus episode. These episodes will be less consistent than the main ones, so some of them may be much longer or much shorter, but there's no shortage of ideas that I have to talk about here, so we should be going fine for a while. And if you have any thoughts on things you'd like to be covered on the podcast, don't hesitate to let me know, and it would be my pleasure to speak about them. Until then, this has been Tom Talks. I'm Tom. Have a great day.